This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah. Tonight we're looking at Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 23. Jeremiah 18, verse 1. Hear the word of God. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one from his evil way, and amend your ways and your deeds. But they say, that is in vain. We will follow our own plans, and we, we will, everyone, act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask among the nations, Who has heard the like of this? Virgin Israel has done a very horrible thing. Does the snow of Lebanon leave the crags of Syria? Do the mountain waters run dry, the cold flowing streams? But my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods. They made them stumble in their ways, in the ancient roads, and to walk into side roads, not the highway, making their land a horror a thing to be hissed at forever. Everyone who passes by it is horrified and shakes his head. Like the east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back, not my face, in the day of their calamity. And they said, Come, let us make plots against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come, let us strike him with the tongue, and let us not pay attention to any of his words. Hear me, O Lord. Listen to the voice of my adversaries. 
Should good be repaid with evil? Yet they've dug a pit for my life. Remember how I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath from them. Therefore, deliver them, their children up to famine. Give them over to the power of the sword. Let their wives become childless and widowed. May their men meet death by pestilence. Their youths be struck down by the sword in battle. May a cry be heard from their houses when you bring the plunderer suddenly upon them. But they've dug a pit to take me and laid snares for my feet. Yet you, O Lord, know all their plotting to kill me. Forgive not their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, in this evening hour, as we study it, for clear minds to think your thoughts after you, and to um, enter into this text and hear what you have to say from it to us this evening. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Time for another object lesson. The Lord has already taken Jeremiah out and had him go through the streets of Jerusalem to see the kinds of things that he would see and to hear the kinds of things he would hear there. Chapter 5, he already had him go look through the ruins of Shiloh, that ancient place of worship for Israel that had become rubble in time under God's judgment in chapter 7. And now the Lord leads his prophet Jeremiah down to the potter's shop, down to his workshop, because he says there, Jeremiah, I will speak to you. There I have some lessons for you to hear. And so we pick up in verse 1 where the Lord comes to Jeremiah and says, go down to the potter's house and there I will let you hear my words. And so he does. He goes down there. and What does he see? Well, he saw exactly what he expected to see. Finds the potter there busy working at his wheel spinning the stone uh, with his feet and putting a wet lump of clay there on the spinning stone and beginning to shape it. And he watches him. And he sees that the potter, as he's working this clay, finds some defect in it, the wrong consistency, perhaps, or maybe some other flaw. And so, recognizing it was unsuitable for the kind of vessel that he was making, then begins to go in a different direction with it and makes it into something else, another vessel, more in keeping with the clay that he has on the wheel before him. Well, what does Jeremiah learn from this? What are we to learn from this object lesson? Well, as we read the verses that follow, as we visit that potter's shop with Jeremiah, uh, the passage touches on three different themes that we need to think about uh, this evening. The first theme is, is very explicit in verses 5 through 11, and it has to do with a sovereign God. A sovereign God. In fact, God states that as Jeremiah is there, very specifically in verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Here, God emphasizes his absolute sovereignty, his absolute power, his absolute rule over this world, but specifically over Israel to do with them 
what he wants to with them. Uh, it emphasizes what the children's catechism declares. God can do all his holy will. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. God is a potter. We are the clay. Israel was the clay. The nations of this world are the clay uh, that God shapes, molds, and does with as he pleases. This particularly fitting, this image, to describe us, human beings, because uh, as we read in Genesis, Adam, first man, was formed from the dust of the earth. And when we die, we return to the ground, same place that this clay comes from. But God emphasizes here his sovereignty. It's interesting how people have a problem with that. They're unwilling to recognize that God is God in various areas. Now, there are those who would say, you know, God's in control of nothing. But typically, even among Christians, we tend to be selective. We may see God being in charge in some ways or not in others. For example, even some Christians, when something painful or difficult, something we might call a tragedy takes place, we might say, well, you know, God didn't mean for that to happen. No. This is something happening apart from God's control or power. Others might say, well, God's in control of everything. But when you start talking about salvation, who is saved? Well, suddenly the field is wide open and God just stands by and watches to see who's going to believe and who's not. But you see, neither of those is the biblical view of God. God brings blessing and he brings calamity, the scriptures teach. God shows mercy to whom he will have mercy. He hardens whom he will harden, the scriptures teach. Individuals, nations are so much clay in the hands of our sovereign potter. And that's exactly the point that God is emphasizing here. And so often we want to talk back. We want to uh, instruct the potter on how the pot should be made and what should be done with it. Isaiah 29 calls us out on the folly of that, where Isaiah says, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Ridiculous, right? Sometimes we are ridiculous. So God's sovereignty here is the theme. And he, he fleshes this out, particularly as it relates to Israel, in a couple of ways. First, he can turn from judgment when a nation repents. Look at verse 7. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom, I'll pluck up and break down and destroy it, pull it up and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster I intended to do to it. Case in point, Old Testament example, what? Nineveh, right? God sends his prophet Jonah to Nineveh. And in response to his most reluctant preaching, Nineveh repents. And, and God has mercy on them instead of the judgment that he promised. But the reverse is also true. He can turn to judgment from blessing to judgment for a rebelling nation, verses 9 through 10. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. So like the potter who finds some difficulty, verse 4, in the clay and reworks it into another vessel, 
God says that as I'm working with nations, if the nation turns to rebellion, I can judge it. If it turns to repentance, I can bless it. Now, God is talking primarily here with Jerusalem, with Judah in mind. But it is interesting that as he describes it, he does so in an open-ended way. As we look at the nations of this earth, as we look at our own nation, we see, and history shows, those nations that even in God's common grace are nations where righteousness is predominant, not to say universal. No nation would ever be that way, short of the new heavens and the new earth. But a nation where people know the Lord, where by and large laws are just, society reflects the principles of God's word, uh, you'll find a nation that's much more likely to be at peace within itself, to be blessed, to be prosperous, to be secure. But when a nation goes its own way and pursues sin and calls good evil and evil good, God says, certainly I can take away my blessing and begin to pour out my judgment on that land. And so certainly for our own nation, as well as the nations of this world, we should pray that in God's mercy and God's grace, nations would reflect righteousness more than they reflect unrighteousness in their national character. But God is speaking specifically here with his people in mind, and this would go for Judah, verse 11, say to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm shaping disaster against you, devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. God's covenant with Israel was conditional upon their faithfulness, upon their obedience, upon their pursuing him. And as Deuteronomy made clear, their obedience would bring blessing. Their disobedience would bring God's displeasure and ultimately his judgment. The same goes for the people of God today. We can talk about the United States or the United Kingdom or Europe or South America, whatever it might be, but ultimately God's concern is with his church. And we experience God's blessing when we're true to his word and faithful to him as a church, as individuals, and we experience his displeasure and even his discipline when we are wayward. So that's the first theme that we find here in this passage is God's sovereignty. It's God who rules the nations. It's God who determines the fate of the nations of this world as well as uh, his people. But then that brings us to the people in verses 12 through 17. A second theme we find here is that of God's wayward people. It really is stunning in light of God's portrayal of himself here as the potter, and they are the clay, and he's the sovereign God, and they are his creation, and they are under his power, that they respond as stubbornly and blindly and stiff-neckedly as they do. I don't know how to make that word an adverb. Stiff-necked manner. Notice what they say. Look at verse 12. No intention of obedience. They say, this is in vain. We will follow our own plans. And will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart? Now, I don't know, you know, as I was thinking about that verse, would they describe themselves as acting in the stubbornness of their evil heart? Maybe Jeremiah was putting his own vocabulary to, to their response there. I don't know if they would describe themselves as stubborn with evil hearts, but that's certainly the gist of what's going on. Maybe they did. Maybe they just reveled in their wickedness. 
We'll follow our own plans. This is vain. Why should we acknowledge the Lord as the potter? Well, we're going to, we're, we are our own makers. We're going to go our own way. Nothing new here. This happened in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve listened to the serpent and choose to obey the serpent rather than God. We will go our own way. Will everyone act according, of course, at that point they weren't fallen. Israel was at this point in acting according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. No intention of obedience, and the Lord gives a quick response. Notice in verses uh, 13 through 17, first of all, that their response is a complete violation of reason. It's irrational. It's insane. Look at 13. The Lord says, ask among the nations, who has heard the like of this? Who's heard anything this ridiculous? Israel's done a very horrible thing. This is a snow leave the crags of Syrian and Lebanon, the mountain streams run dry. No, but my people have forgotten me. You know, other things that shouldn't happen, that are unthinkable, don't happen. The snow's never gone there. The, the, the streams don't run dry. But the Virgin Israel has turned her back on her covenant Lord, worshiping false gods who make them stumble in their ways in the ancient roads. This has come up before, you know, with people exchanging their gods. Has anybody heard of that? And yet that's exactly what Judah has done. So the violation of reason, the, the amazement of bystanders, the amazement of the nations around in verse 16, uh, as Israel's made their land a horror, a thing to be hissed at or perhaps whistled at. Now, it's hard to know whether he has in mind just the sheer wickedness and rebellion of it or the condition of it after God's judgment. The people go by, passing by, viewing it, as it were, and they, they either hiss at it, or perhaps the idea is that they whistled at it, you know, and someone might see this total wreck and just go, you know, something like that, just in amazement. And they shake their head. They're horrified at this, this mess that Judah has become, whether through her own sin or because of the judgment of God on her sin. But and then 17 does refer to God's judgment. Like the east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back, not my, my face. You know, the uh, Aaronic benediction, which I used this morning from Numbers, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up, lift up his countenance. What is his countenance? His face. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The blessing of the Lord is his gaze on you. But here, instead of looking at his people, instead of facing his people, he turns his back on them. If the face of the Lord is blessing. The back of the Lord is judgment. I will show them my back, not my face, in the day of their calamity. And so the second thing we find here, interestingly, in contrast to the sovereignty of God, is the waywardness of his people. But we look at Judah, we certainly know our own hearts. I hope you see something very familiar in these words where we can read the Word of God, where you can hear the Word of God preached and go out and sin against God deliberately, purposefully, perhaps secretly, rebelliously, knowingly, intentionally. There's nothing in this passage that is strange to us as fallen people. This describes our hearts. This describes our attitudes. This describes what we, too, are capable of. The waywardness of our own hearts. We've already seen 
uh, back in chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful. It's sick. Who can understand it? But the third thing here, um, painfully, the third theme is a beleaguered prophet. A beleaguered prophet. Look at verse 18. They've already said, no, forget God. We're going to do what we want. And then in verse 18, they say, come, let us make plots against Jeremiah. You know, it's the old kill the messenger routine. The law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. There's no stopping this guy. He's going to go on and on unless something is done. Come, let us strike him with the tongue. Let's slander him. Let's discredit him. Let's say things against him. And let's not pay attention to any of his words. Now, just as the people speak against the Lord and the Lord responds, here they speak against Jeremiah, this beleaguered, patient prophet of the Lord, and Jeremiah responds. And the final part of this passage is his prayer in verse 19. He prays, first of all, that God would remember him. Verses 19 and 20. Hear me, O Lord. Listen. Listen to what they're saying. Should good be repaid with evil? Lord, you know, I've, I've prayed for them. I've tried to teach them. I've been patient. And this is what I get in, res- in response. That's exactly what it is. Remember how I stood before you to speak good for them? To turn away your wrath from them? And this is what I get. They go out and dig pits for me. They, they, they're after my life. So he prays that God would remember him. And then... He prays that God would judge them. It's a pretty harsh language. Deliver up their children to famine. Let them starve to death. Give them over the power of the sword. Let their wives become childless and widowed. May their men meet death by pestilence. Youths be struck down by the sword in the middle of battle. May a cry be heard from their houses when you bring the plunderer suddenly upon them. He goes on in verse 23, Forgive not their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. What is this? Jeremiah had been praying for them, hurting with them, pleading on their behalf. And now he basically says, Lord, I've had it. Get them. Destroy them. Make them hurt. Make them suffer. What are we to make of that? Is Jeremiah just... um, Venting his spleen here, just a fit of pique. Perhaps, maybe some of these things that he prayed were inappropriate. But it's worth taking a look at another passage. I want us to consider, if you'll turn over to Psalm 109. Psalm 109 is a psalm in the class known as imprecatory psalms that call for God's judgment on his enemies. And like Jeremiah's prayer, Psalm 109 is particularly pointed, even vicious. Psalm 109, uh, in a similar situation, verse 5, they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. In verse 6, this is actually David as it's described to him. He says, appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. 
May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. And so it goes. And you think, well, that seems so contrary to what we understand our responsibility as Christians to be, to pray for our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, love our enemies. What are we to make of this? Well, it could be that what Jeremiah is expressing here is his frustration at a perceived injustice to him, that he had enough of suffering, enough of the empty, the, the sermons he preached to no effect in people's lives. Then he finally just said, God, get them. There's something of self-righteousness in that, although we might also imagine that Jeremiah uh, was justified in his opinion. But what about David? What about the imprecatory psalms or, or, or an imprecatory passage such as this? It is true on a personal level that we are to love our enemies. We're to pray for those who persecute us. But you know, part of something we pray every Sunday in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, is to pray for God's judgment on his enemies. I pray that those who persist in their rebellion against God, in their hatred of his people, would finally receive their just end. Now, again, on a personal level, we don't pray for people that way. We pray for their mercy. We recognize that, that just as they need mercy, so we need mercy. That we, too, are sinners. That we, too, apart from God's grace, would be under the judgment of God. And we want for others to have the same mercy. Think of Paul, who was astounded at the mercy shown to him, who was formerly a persecutor of the church, feared, maybe hated by Christians. And so we want to be careful with a passage like this, but we also recognize that Jeremiah, as God's official spokesman, had a point. The people were stiff-necked, they were rebellious, they were unlistening. And Jeremiah says, fine, you know, if, if they won't repent, if they won't turn, then God judged them. Now, some of this is because Jeremiah is offended and hurt at their treatment of him. But some of this, I think, too, grows out of his zeal for the holiness and the glory and the justice of God. So we want to be careful. I don't know that we need to take up Jeremiah's words and praying for people we know who may have slighted us. We don't do that. But in a bigger picture, we do pray that Christ would come for his people, that he would judge his and our enemies, and that he would begin his reign as king of kings. Well, as we look at this passage, we can look at it in two ways. The message of the potter and the clay is, is twofold. First, very clearly, it represents judgment. In this regard, this is not a comforting passage. Uh, Phil Reichen, in his commentary on, on Jeremiah, points out that 
like much modern art, the pot on this wheel is meant to be disturbing. It's about clay, as he says, in the hands of an angry potter. God brought you into this world, and he can take you out of this world. But we would also have to say that uh, this passage also represents hope. It represents hope because God can make something beautiful, something magnificent out of even the most unpromising blobs of clay. Because you see, the potter was working, it was spoiled, it went bad, it went wrong, but he didn't take the clay and throw it out. Rather, he made something new out of it. And though Israel, though Judah, though Jerusalem was crushed for a time, God took the remnant, God took the residue, and ultimately made that into a beautiful kingdom. Kingdom of God. The kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom about we, that we read about in, in Matthew, as we've been studying Matthew on Sunday mornings, that, whose growth we read about in the book of Acts. A kingdom that you and I are a part of today. And what God does on this large scale in terms of his kingdom, he also does on a personal level and on a family level. He takes us fallen, blemished, broken clay that we are, And he makes us into something beautiful and magnificent in Christ. We should want that. We should want to be malleable, moldable, pliable clay in God's hands. To make of us and to do with us what he will. The Swiss reformer, Ulrich Zwingli, whose name is fun to say, Zwingli, uh, he wasn't John Calvin, who's been much celebrated in this 500th anniversary uh, year of his birth. But Zwingli uh, was instrumental in the Reformation in Switzerland. But he wrote this to a friend. He said, I beseech Christ for this one thing only, that he will enable me to endure all things courageously, and that he break me as a potter's vessel or make me strong as it pleases you see, those should be the words on our lips, as it pleases him. We may not always know. In fact, we often won't know what the potter is doing. And we may at times want to complain and dictate to the potter what he ought to be doing, how he ought to form the pot. Well, nonsense. He is the potter. He's the sovereign God. We are the clay. We are his people. Can we trust him? Do you trust him? When he cuts patterns into your life. When he may bend you in ways that you would rather not be bent. Can we trust him? Can we trust him to be the clay on that spinning wheel? For your answer, you need look no further than the cross. Let's pray. Father, at the cross, we see your love. We see where you gave your own son to win us back to yourself from sin and from Satan. Father, we thank you that you are at work in our lives, and sometimes we will admit that work is unpleasant, it is painful, it sometimes seems more than we can bear. 
But Father, we know that your firm, steady, loving hands are in it, shaping, molding, trimming to make us into the beautiful, beautiful vessels that you have redeemed us to be. So, Father, we pray that you would be at work in our lives. We pray that by your grace, Lord, we would not be grumblers or complainers, but that we would be happy to be on that wheel as you shape us and make us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.